Hello and welcome everyone to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including the topics you are too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Sheena Yap Chan. Our guest joining us today is Asha Daya. Asha is an author, producer, TEDx speaker, and founder of Girl Talk HQ. Hey, Asha. Hi, Sheena. So lovely to join you today. It's such a pleasure to have you on our platform today. Maybe you can share a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a producer. I'm currently working on a few documentary projects. I've been in TV for almost 20 years now, which feels like I'm giving away my age there. Um, I'm also a writer. I founded a platform called Girl Talk HQ, which is a storytelling platform. It's a platform where I amplify the work of everyday badass inspiring women and girls and I I believe I'm a storyteller by nature. I I really love to use my voice and my talent and my platform to amplify stories especially of women of color and um, people who have traditionally not had platforms to share their lives and their stories. I feel like that's my mission through the media so that's that's who I am and that's what I do. I love it. And I think we definitely need more platforms out there to elevate the voices of women, especially women of color, because we are so marginalized, right? We definitely need yeah. more women of color, especially in leadership roles, right? Because the number is still very small until today. So I love what you're doing. I'm all about women empowerment. I'm always elevating, you know, the voices of women because it's so needed. And um, were you were you born and raised in the States or did, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you grew up, your life story. Yeah, absolutely. So I am, my background is Indian. Um, I was actually born in the UK and I grew up in Australia. So my family migrated to Australia when I was around eight. And then I moved to the United States in 2009 and I've lived here ever since here in Los Angeles. So I I feel like, well, a a lot of Indians and and Asians in general, but especially Indians, because there's so many of us, we love to migrate around the world. And that's kind of like my family story. We've migrated from my great-grandparents out of India to East Africa and then my family from the UK to Australia and me coming here. Um, So that's really how I've kind of come to Los Angeles and work in the media but that's where I grew up and that's that's my background. Wow what was it like growing up in Australia especially you know being Indian was it is it you know was it like hard for you was it like you were the only person who was of Indian descent I'd love to hear just a little bit more about that because I'm pretty sure the audience would love to know as well yeah I love that question actually so Australia is very much like the United States in that it was a settled country there were colonizers who came over from the UK and colonized Australia Um, but today it is a very multicultural society especially in the big city so I grew up in Brisbane which is a big city Um, It's very, very multicultural. We have a very big Asian population because we're very close to um, Asia. Um, So we get a lot of immigrants, a lot of um, international students and families migrating to Australia for, you know, different, better prospects and jobs and studies and and all of that good stuff. So in my school, uh, we were so diverse. And this was in the 90s. I was in school in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And So it was really interesting looking around, you know, hopping on a bus and going to school or the downtown city area, which was the cool thing to do. And looking around all the kids in my school, we were all different shades of skin colors and it was so diverse. But then you'd open a magazine and flick on the TV and it was just mostly predominantly white people. So that that was where the disconnect was. 
it's definitely changing now. And keep in mind, Australia is a much smaller population than bigger countries like uh, the UK or the United States or other countries where there is a huge immigrant population. Um, but it's it was just really, I always felt like I never fit in. And that's part of why I wanted to come to the United States. And that's why I wanted to work in media to give myself first, but also people like me, the, the idea of representation and to know that you matter, your story matters, and people who look like you should be seen in leadership, like you mentioned, and in the media and in public life. And so that's kind of really been my driving mission. Wow. I mean, I've, I kind of went through similar things like you. I, I grew up in Toronto, Canada. Toronto is a melting pot, you know, very, yes. very diverse, very multicultural, but growing up in the early 90s, so now everyone knows my age, uh, <laughs> I, it was the same. I never saw anybody that looked like me. All I ever saw right. was Caucasian people on TV. A part of me wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes, change my same. name to Heather. Yeah, because I thought <laughs> that's what being beautiful was at the time. Yeah. You know, I denounced my Asian culture because I thought you know it wasn't cool, it was ugly, and it, it wasn't until in my 20s when I dyed my hair back from blonde to my original color was where I embrace my Asian culture. And like you, you know, I wanted to create a stronger representation, especially for Asian women, because of the negative stereotypes that we still face today. We really need to dismantle that so we can go out there and create the leaders that we need and help women realize their potential and they can go out there and forge their own path. And so you mentioned that you moved to the States in 2009 to pursue this type of representation. I'm pretty sure your family was like, what are you doing, right? Because it's not typical, you know, any Asian family that you that would be in this situation would be like, why don't you get a job? Why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer? Why are you going into media? Is there even yeah. money to be made in media? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear, you know, from your perspective, what was that like? Yeah, so I, I will say that I'm lucky, even though I grew up in a very typical Indian family, I think because of our Western influence in Australia, my parents were you know, very conservative in their values, but also very forward thinking and very progressive. My dad, especially, also my mom, but especially my dad, which is very unusual in a lot of South Asian families, was very much about, for me and my older sister, like get an education, get a career, you know, have that financial stability. So I really, really love that he was a driving force in that for me as well. Um, out of my siblings and I, I'm the middle child, I have a younger brother, I was the first to leave home. Um, I moved from Brisbane to Sydney when I got a job as the host of the Disney Channel in Australia. And so that was a big step for my family, being the first one to move out of home. I was 20 or I just turned, uh, just about to turn 21. Um, so I think because I was the first to leave the family home, making the decision to move to the United States in 2009 by myself, I, it was big, but it also wasn't out of the realm of possibility. They knew that I wanted to come to Hollywood and, you know, be in the film industry and be a filmmaker and be on TV. So although they were, um, you know, they had their reservations and they had their, um, you know, probably their own thoughts and opinions, they they still encouraged me. And I'm so glad for that because it's, it's a, it means a big deal when you come from a very family-oriented culture to have your parents' blessing to do something. And so that's always stuck with me. And, you know, I, I think they, they definitely miss me and I definitely miss them. Um, but having that support really meant a lot. And, and I don't think I realized the gravity of 
me just stepping outside and having my parents support me more than I do now, you know, looking back because I have two two young kids and the thought of them leaving home one day, I'm just like, oh my gosh, all the emotions that even though my parents had said quite a lot and shared their heart with me, I'm sure they held back a lot too, which, you know, because now I would be like, oh my God, I'm going to tell my kids, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But my parents weren't like that. So I'm really thankful of their support and their encouragement, despite what they may have been feeling and what they had come from as well. Yeah. And like, like you, I'm also the middle child. I was kind of like, <laughs> I was kind of like the first person to also step out of, like to move out of the house. Right. Must and be a middle child thing. I think, yeah, there's a middle child syndrome going on. Right. They always say the middle sure. child is like the one that kind of just forges their own path, does their own thing. Kind of yeah. like someone from the outside, if that made sense. But, you know, it's great that you had that support because not everyone has that support, right? A lot of uh, people in in Asian culture, it's like they're totally against it, even more so for an Asian woman because, you know, we're told to stay at home, raise a family, have kids, and literally never rock the boat. And because of that, we're suffering so much, right? Mental health problems, you know, so much taboos. And, and so this is why it's so important to talk about these things, right? To show others that, you know, there's platforms out there where you can share your story to show up as a, as your authentic self and realize your true potential. So when you, you know, decided to move to the the States in 2009, what was that experience like for you? Was it like, kind of like, oh, it kind of looks like Australia, but on the West end, but, or was there like, even though like, you know, they're both Western countries, like, was there a culture shock for you still? Yeah, it was an interesting time. It was 2009. There was, um, you know, Barack Obama had just been elected. There was also a big economy crash coming later that year. So it was very tumultuous. And I think I was very young and naive. And that helped me not be so afraid and not so anxious about what I was getting into. But I think all that anxiety came later. Um, You know, I went through a lot more things later in my life. I went through a divorce. I got married and then went through a divorce and then got married again. Um, but it was a time when I was just so adventurous and really gung-ho and wanted to do it. And then, you know, landing here, my first job was hosting a, a big kids game show on Nickelodeon. And then two months after that, the economy crashed. And so it was, yeah, it was an interesting time, um, politically and socially, but for me personally, it was just like, yeah, I'm here. I've made it now bring it on. I thought I was like going up the roller coaster, but little did I realize things were going to take a turn for I guess the worst and it it was just going to be a roller coaster ride from then on. Yeah. And, and, and life in general is a huge roller coaster. I mean, you know, we've seen that from the pandemic, right? When everything just shut down and we had no clue what was going on, but as human beings, we're very resilient, right? We can figure things out along the way. And like you mentioned, you know, you thought you were like on cloud nine and then the financial crisis hit and you're like, back to the bottom of the pond and how are you able to get out of that situation now you know you mentioned you know you you went you came to the states at such a young age and I know when you're like in your 20s like you're just you're just excited you're excited about everything you don't know what's happening but you're just you have this energy about the excitement of new opportunities yeah, but yeah how are you able to come out of that yeah I think there was it was that idea of I felt so invincible in my 20s and I think that's a good feeling to have because you can be bold without the feeling of being held back in many ways. I'm sure there are others who can relate to that too. Um, but yeah, I think it, it really took me a while to accept that I wasn't in control of absolutely everything. I think because I grew up in such a close-knit family and I, 
I was very lucky and very privileged to have such a great family that supported me, got a good education. We have a great healthcare system in Australia, you know, all those things. And then stepping out into my own and in a new country, I didn't realize that there were going to be so many things that I would have to learn, not just in regard to what was happening in the world, but also how I find my own, how I define my identity and how I find my own way forward through the difficult times. It's easier to be like, yeah, I'm a badass. I'm awesome. I can conquer anything through the good times. But it's during those really difficult times and the the struggles that really kind of define who you are. So I, I think a, uh, throughout the years, it's it's taken me a lot of internal deep work to realize being in control of everything else out there is being, oh, sorry, not being in control of everything out there is okay as long as I know how to better myself and know who I am and know what I'm, you know, showing up as in the world. So it's definitely definitely an ongoing process. I haven't reached the pinnacle by any means, but I, I've learned that, and especially, you know, becoming a mother as well, that changed my identity in, in a massive way. So just all these things along the way have helped me become more resilient Um and understand that having control of everything is just not realistic or possible. That's so true. I know we try to like force certain situations or control that situation. And when we put that force, it just, it becomes a hot mess, right? And sometimes we need to just take a step back and figure out, you know, what are the lessons that we can learn from the situation that we're in, right? They always say whatever happens could be a blessing or a lesson, right? And the struggles that we go through, it helps us build more courage, more confidence, and helps us move forward, right? I don't see failure as something that's bad. I see failure as feedback, right? If something didn't work, you move on to the next and to the next and to the next until you hit whatever your goal is. You know, I wanted to know what was it like, you know, going into Hollywood, especially as an Indian woman, right? When Asian representation wasn't so prevalent back then, you know, was it a lot harder for you to get that hosting gig or did you get rejected a lot? I just, I'm just curious because I know not for everyone, you know, they've had their fair share of struggles and they've always mentioned there wasn't always a lot of uh, positions out there, especially for the Asian American community. But yeah, I wanted to know like your story from your perspective, what it was like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never saw people like me on TV, even coming to Hollywood, even though it was a bigger pool, there were more opportunities. And yes, there were, you know, a little bit more representation of people of color. Um, generally speaking, it was still very, very small in, in comparison to you know, the Caucasian majority that you see on screen. Um, so I think I, I, and to answer your question about rejection, yes, I've had more rejection than I've had yeses. And I think that's true for every South Asian and Asian person, person in Hollywood. Um, but there was part of me that was a little bit naive because I'd gotten so lucky at a very young age in Australia. Um, you know, I'd gotten all these great gigs. I was hosting a national kids show um, in my last year of, university I just landed this amazing job then I was on the Disney channel I did MTV I did all these great jobs on TV then I moved over here thinking oh I'll just kind of transition into that but little did I realize I would go to audition after audition after audition being a host and I would get close to a lot of jobs and then it would either be I, I wouldn't get picked because of my accent that was one thing and I'm thinking all right or I would see the person they ended up hiring for the job and it was a guy or it was a white guy or a white girl. I'm like, all right, well, this is just 
And that's when I started to realize, okay, this is just the way it is. And then digital media started to become really, really huge. Um, people were making a lot of YouTube content, blog content. Social media was starting to, you know, really, really grow and become a way for people to share their own voices. And so I realized I need to utilize this new form of um, media and technology to kind of share my voice because I couldn't keep going to the same gatekeepers knocking on these doors going, please give me a chance because it just wasn't happening. And there were a lot of auditions I would do for, I used to do a lot of commercials or rather I should say I used to audition for a lot of commercials and anytime it was for, uh, you know, something Indian or they, they were casting a South Asian person, you see the same group of South Asian women and men in these rooms. And it was funny because you start making friends with them and I'm friends with a few of them now. And it's just really interesting that we hardly get a look in for the main roles or jobs that have nothing to do with that ethnicity but the minute they want a little bit of ethnicity or um you know something exotic then all of a sudden you see the same people in the audition room and it's so frustrating because a lot of us we just want to be hired for our talents and our passion rather than just what we look like but also what we look like shouldn't be a hindrance in any way so I think it's like walking that double-edged sword so I think for me it was a lot of okay, well, this is just the industry now. How am I going to utilize these new opportunities through digital media and social media to create my own platform, to share my voice and create my brand, I guess, for a use of a better word. And that's kind of how I started Girl Talk HQ. That's how I started using social media more and realizing that this was a way for me to get out there and, and have my presence that didn't rely on, you know, waiting for the phone to ring or for my agent or my manager at the time to tell me, yes, we approve of you being on TV. <laughs> it just sounds so silly. Isn't that, isn't that crazy that that was in 2009? Like you still had to struggle to get jobs and gigs and got rejected so many times because of your cultural background, even your accent, which I think is phenomenal. I mean, I would probably hire you based on your, based on your accent. It's so cool. I wish I could do that. But if I try, I think the listenership will drop. So we- <laughs> Australian accent is a hard one to do. <laughs> but I mean, I love what you mentioned, right? Like, if you can't create, like if you can't join something, right? Like if you can't find a seat at the table, you create your own table and fill the seats, right? Which led you to creating Girl Talk HQ. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more of how you started that and why you're so passionate about storytelling and creating this platform, especially for women of color who've been marginalized until now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I started Girl Talk HQ kind of as like, not even a side gig, just a hobby. I just started blogging on Tumblr, but back when Tumblr was a thing in 2012, and I wanted to create a website or a platform or something that would share everyday women's stories as opposed to just celebrity stories. And I really wanted to center it around women and girls because I felt like that there was something missing in the marketplace. And I'll rewind a little bit because I realized years after starting Girl Talk HQ that that seed for Girl Talk HQ and my passion for women started with my mom. So my mom as an immigrant, when we were in Australia, she would love to watch um, not Bollywood movies, but a lot of um, Indian art house films. And a lot of these movies were about women in rural Indian villages who became a pariah and then they became a superhero because they went against the odds and they you know, all these really inspiring stories. And my mum would always watch these films. I'm like, oh, mom, what are you watching now? Or she would tell me these stories of, oh, you know, this woman, she was an outcast in this 
Indian village and then she became a hero because she stood up for other women. I'm like, all right, cool, whatever. But then I didn't realize in the back of my mind, like that planted the seed in me of, I guess, feminism for my mom without her even using the word. And the idea of women being marginalized in a lot of ways, but standing up regardless and that bravery uh, to stand up and, and be seen and be heard, even if people don't want you to be seen and be heard. So, so that was kind of going on in the back of my mind and it was kind of laying dormant until around 2011, I was going through a separation and then a divorce in 2012 with my then husband. Um, I also should mention that I, I went to a conservative evangelical church when I first moved here. Uh, I also grew up um, evangelical Christian. So when I moved out here, I joined this large church. And one of the things that a lot of young women and men are taught is, you know, there's a lot of pressure to get married early because there's the whole no sex before marriage thing and the shame and all of that. So I did, I got married early and um, that marriage ended up being very toxic and very abusive. And so I decided to leave, which was also a big step because, you know, a lot of the things that Christians believe is God hates divorce and you don't leave the church, you stay with your marriage and you work it out. And I tried and it wasn't the right thing. And thanks to my parents supporting my decision, even though they are Christians, they were like, get out of an abusive, toxic situation. You need to be healthy and be on, you know, stand on your own two feet. So I left that marriage, left that church. And it was a very big community, very big church. Everyone was very close knit. And I was involved in so many ways. I was like singing on the worship team. I was involved in women's ministries and children's ministries and midweek, leading midweek Bible studies. So I, I, a lot of people knew me, I was involved in things, but the minute I decided to leave that marriage and that church, it was like dead silence. No one reached out to me except for one or two random men who were like, you should stay with your husband. I'm like, all right. So I think that led me to feel like, where, where are my community of, of women and people who I thought were my friends? And are you shunning me just because I'm now choosing to take a stand for my life in a healthy way that is risky according to, you know, the shared beliefs that we held. And it kind of made me sad, but at the same time I was, you know, still working in the media and I started to just associate with women in film groups and women in media groups and just forming a whole new social circle. And that really introduced me to feminism and female stories and the idea of the need for more female representation and especially of women of color so during that time, I just wanted to do something. I, my career was kind of like going along, wasn't going anywhere great. I was doing a lot of production assisting jobs on reality shows. I, you know, my personal life was in a shambles. It was just a major transition. And at that time, blogs and social media were just exploding. So I thought I'm going to start a blog where I'm going to find stories of women who are going through stuff like I am, everyday women who want to share their stories and not feel so alone. Because that's one of the things I felt. I felt very alone, felt very isolated, and that if I dared to speak about things that I was going through, including the dreaded D word, divorce, at the age of 29, that it would just look like, you know, like a scarlet letter on me or something. So it really kind of gave me comfort that I was able to use my media passion somehow and then also um, my need for women and, you know, female community online. And that's kind of how Girl Talk HQ started. And then along the way, it's kind of evolved and refined and become a, plat become a platform where it's less about me and more about how I can 
use a platform to amplify other women out there. And like I said, not so much celebrities, but everyday women who are just really craving that community and looking for a way to share their voice. I love that. And can I just say, I commend you for leaving a toxic marriage. I know it's not easy, especially when you come from an Asian culture where everyone is afraid of tarnishing the family name, people talking behind your back, like you mentioned your own church group, kind of like disowned you after you decided to leave your ex-husband. but. You know, not a lot of people share these types of stories and there's so many women out there still suffering, right? Especially during the pandemic when we were all locked down, you know, like physical abuse, Mm -hmm. domestic abuse, you know, the numbers went up because it's like they were trapped and they had nowhere to go to. And so, and these stories are so important to tell, right? We, our stories are so important because we never know who we can, who we can relate to or who's, who, who's listening and can realize their own potential. So I really love that you know, you had the courage to go out there and do it, you know, regardless of what was going to happen. And, you know, it's great that your parents also said you need to leave, right? Because most of the time it's like, no, you need to stay because it's going to look bad at us, right? We're going to be shunned from society. But, you know, when when you know something isn't right, you have to have that courage to go out there and leave. And that's why support systems are so important, such as your platform, Girl Talk HQ, because it shows them like, you're not the only one going through this. I went through this. I was able to come out of it and I am thriving. You know, like today you're, you're married, you have kids, uh, you know, you're doing so much great work out there to really empower women, especially women of color. And, you know, I'm just curious, what are some upcoming projects that you have in the works? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm working on two different documentary projects. The first is a short documentary called Someone You Know. And I shot it in 2020 during the pandemic. So it's all shot on an iPhone. Um, And it's about three women sharing their later abortion stories, which is a very divisive and taboo topic. But right now in America, it is such a necessary topic to talk about as we're on the precipice of seeing Roe versus Wade overturned. So later abortion, a lot of people know it according to its propaganda term, which is late late term abortion, which is not a medical term at all. It is an anti-abortion term. Because um, technically, medically, when you're late term, you're at 40 weeks and you're about to give birth or beyond, 40 weeks and beyond. So these women are um, very diverse women. They're from different parts of the United States. And they're really showcasing the barriers that are put in their way in different states um, and how hard it is to access abortion later and later in pregnancy. And the later you are in pregnancy, the more risky it is, the more expensive it is, the more dangerous it could be not the procedure itself, but the pregnancy, the later it is, if, if there is something going wrong. And later abortion patients are a very small percentage of over, overall abortion patients. It's less than 2%. Um, and there are only certain states that provide um, abortion care um, all the way through pregnancy when it is needed for a medical emergency. And so now with Roe versus Wade um, about to be overturned, this is going to be even harder It's going to be even more dangerous for a lot of people. And we know from the data that it's going to harm women of color the most, low-income women, um, immigrant women the most. And so what I want to do with this documentary is just really show empathy and show, put the human face on this issue because it's easy to debate the the data and the statistics and the religion and the politics. But when it comes down to it, Each person has their own individual story and there is no way one law can fully encompass everything that could go wrong in a pregnancy. It it has to be the decision of that person who's pregnant to make 
the right choice for them in that moment. And so I, I really, really hope that this film can be used as a, a way to start conversation, to share with your colleagues, friends, family. In a lot of Asian families, maybe this topic is taboo. And I hope that by seeing women of color predominantly, predominantly in this film, that it can be a way to open up um, the conversation. So that's someone you know, and it's going to be there's going to be a lot of animation as well to retell the parts of these stories. And the second project I'm working on is a docu series uh, with a, and I've I've got a development deal with a British production company, and we're looking at global abortion laws. Uh, we've partnered with Amnesty International, and so we're really looking at the global movement to decriminalize abortion in a lot of countries and the impact of anti-abortion countries on everyday women and girls and what happens when abortion is completely outlawed and really juxtaposing what it looks like to be to live in a country where human rights is the driving factor between uh, you know allowing someone the decision that they need in their pregnancy or um, living in a country where it's very regressive and repressive in terms of reproductive rights so um, that's in development and so stay tuned for that because I, I'm really excited to um, you know work on that in the future but the the documentary I'm sorry and the docuseries is called Life at All Costs that's the working title right now um, so it's really taking a look at what does it mean to value all life and what what does it cost us to you know to value the life of the woman who's at the center of this conversation and so the short documentary Someone You Know which you know, I, I really want to reiterate that a lot of people who get abortions are, is someone you know, it's someone you love and someone in your family or your social circle. Um, that I hope to release that film later this year. I'm currently in post-production. And yeah, I, I just really want to get these projects out there. I think that those are my third and fourth children <laughs> out there in the world. Well, we are so excited to, you know, have see that when it comes out. I know... It's it's crazy how all these anti-abortion laws are created by men and they have no idea what a woman goes through, right? Or what situation they're in and right. they don't understand why we need our own human right to figure out if we want to keep a baby or not. I know this is a very um, controversial topic, but you know, in the end, we should also have our own choices, right? As women, as human beings. Right, it's personal. Yeah, it's not, exactly. it's not just, you know, there's so many different uh, things they have to go through, hidden like meanings and things like that. And you know, each and every woman has gone through something traumatic, right? And so it it's so important that we, yeah. we should bring this up and talk about it because it's not talked about enough. And especially in America where they, they just yeah. want to ban abortion, you know, just all at once. It's just- and they're not going to stop at abortion. It's going to go to birth control. They're trying to attack, attack trans rights and LGBTQ rights. And so it's important to be aware that it's not just going to end with Roe versus Wade. That's the yeah. start. And so we have to speak out and share our stories and create films that share stories that will hopefully impact people in a positive way. Well, first off, I want to say thank you for all the work that you do. It's definitely needed. And I'm so grateful that you're here today on the podcast. You know, if our listeners wanted to connect with you, check out your upcoming projects or check out Girl Talk HQ. Is there any links or social media profiles you want to share with us? Yeah, you can check out the work I'm doing, ashadaya.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, at ashadaya for both. And check out girltalkhq.com for all the good uh, um, female empowerment stories that you need. Thank you, Asha, for coming to Asian Voices Radio. To learn more about Asha and her work, please visit ashadaya.com. If you have any suggestions for future topics, we'd love to hear from you. 
Also, be sure to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, I'm Sheena Yap Chan. I'd like to thank you for listening. Take care until then, everyone.